The way leaders ask questions can make all the difference on how an organization performs, and as you'll hear today, sometimes whether people live or die. On this episode, former U.S. Navy Captain David Marquet returns to the show to help all of us to ask better questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 454. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of those conversations we have as leaders involve asking good questions. And anything we can do as leaders to ask better questions is going to help us to be able to help folks learn, to help elicit more learning within the organization, and of course, to help drive results within our organization and for the people the organization serves. About a year ago, we had Edgar Schein on the show, one of the founders of just great work around organizational culture and behavior. And when we were talking, he mentioned the work of David Marquet and how important David Marquet's work has become in helping leaders to utilize language well. I am so glad today to welcome David Marquet back to the show. He is the former commander of the USS Santa Fe, a nuclear-powered attack submarine. Under David's command, the ship had an impressive turnaround, achieving the highest retention and operational standings in the United States Navy. David is the author of the bestseller, Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders. He's been on the show a couple of times before speaking about the book, and he has just released his new book, Leadership is Language, the Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. David, so glad to have you back. So glad to be on the show. How are you? And uh, welcome to all your listeners. And Dr. Shine's work is really important. His book, Humble Humble Inquiry, was one of the uh, inspirations for what we tried to do here. Yeah, he's just been such a guide to so many of us over the years. And I'm and, and as have you, David, just really impressed with how much you have encouraged us as leaders to look at and challenge us on the language we're using in order to help us to be more effective. And this new book, which I love, and I've, I've been in the details of this the last week, is also about a ship, <laughs> but it's a yeah. very different outcome, and this time about a ship called the El Faro. Could you frame for us why you chose to write about the ship and what happened to the El Faro? Yeah, sure. So the book is about re-engineering the words we use at work. And my hypothesis was that we were trapped in what I call an industrial age playbook. And I get a lot of people say, no, 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 I'm enlightened, I'm not trapped that way. But we use words over and over again, like clockwork, all hands meetings, on and on and on, which stem from the industrial age. Now those are sort of harmless perhaps, but the way we run meetings and the way we ask questions has this legacy which runs deep and we don't realize we're doing it. So the challenge was two things. One, I needed to bring a story to life that people could say, oh, now I see what we're talking about. And number two, there needed to be a structure. And there was this tragedy. This happened only four years ago. In 2015, a 790-foot-long ship with all the modern weather equipment sailed into a hurricane 
in the Atlantic Ocean and sank. And you say, well, how did that happen? How could they have possibly done such a thing? We know because the National Transportation Safety Board recovered the black box from the ship. The ships have black boxes on their bridges, just like airplanes do in the cockpit. And so there are 25 hours of conversations, and it's a 500-page transcript of what they actually said to each other. Wow. And we, all the people whose voices are in this transcript all end up dead. All 33 people perished. And when you read it, the, the thing that strikes me is they're good people trying to do the right thing, but they're trapped in this old way of speaking. There's a couple critical moments where they have to make a decision whether they're going to divert, which even that implies the status quo is not divert. So this is an exit. It's a deviation from the plan. It's not two different branches of equal weight. And they can't do it. They have conversations with the captain, two of the different officers. The conversations are painful. They're halting, vague, self-deferential, self-deprecating, full of ums and ahs, and and eventually ineffective because the ship does not turn. They do not order it, and the captain doesn't give them permission. And fortunately, because we have this, we can't blink our eyes and say, well, well you know, we, we train our people differently or we, we want them to be there. It's not how we want them or how we train them. It's how do teams actually be and what's in the way of better leadership. So that's why the El Faro story is so important. It's haunting reading the book about the story and going back and listening to some of the transcripts, knowing how this ends up. And what is really fascinating is you've looked at this entire accident and specifically zeroed in on the transcript and the language and looked at that also through the lens of what you learned on Santa Fe, also through the lens of what you've learned working with leaders over the last decade and helped us now to be able to take some good from this tragedy and to frame it in a way that helps us to ask better questions so we don't end up going down the same path of the El Faro did. And I think you pointed out something really effective too, is like this well-meaning, right? I mean, no one wanted this to happen, and yet it did. So how do we as leaders do a better job? And one of the distinctions you make early on in the book is the distinction between red work and blue work. Tell me about that. So this is a really important point. A lot of people read this and they'll say, oh, well, this captain, and and the captain kind of gets a bad rap. A simplistic view is, well, the captain made bad decisions. And this is not that helpful. And I I actually don't think it's accurate because this is a person who had a long reputation, was in his 50s, always good marks, no citations. And it was the structure of the team and the way they were operating that trapped them, not one particular person's, quote, decision-making. So the the idea is there are two different kinds of work. One is you got to make a decision. What are we going to do? What should we make, cars or batteries? Which route should we take to San Juan? This ship was going from Jacksonville to San Juan. Should we take the direct route, which takes us through the Atlantic, or the longer route, which takes us behind the Bahamas? It's protected, but it's longer, costs more money, delays entry. That's what we call blue work. It's thinking, it's creative, it's cognitive. It benefits from embracing variability, but it's also very susceptible to stress. If we say, if we put you under time pressure, you got 30 seconds, 
make a decision. It's very hard to get your pre prefrontal cortex to open up for these decisions. Then on the other hand, we have what we call red work. Red work is compliance work. It's process. It's driving the well, Okay, we've already decided that this is the route. Now drive the route. Now run the process. Run the assembly line. We've decided to take off and fly cross country. Now let's fly cross country. We've decided to do the operation. Now let's do the operation. Red work benefits from a reduction of variability. Every process is the same. Every bulk is in the same. And the key is we are programmed from the industrial age to have two different groups of people doing this. Management did the blue work. Workers did the red work. But what we need now is for everyone to do both kinds of work. We need the doers to be the deciders. But the language and the playbook that we're using isn't set up that way. And this is fundamentally what trapped the El Faro. I also really appreciate that you make the distinction in the book that the distinction often made a generation ago, at least, was blue collar and white collar work. And you intentionally named red work what would be the quote unquote blue collar work in order to reinforce the point that in today's marketplace and organizations, Everyone needs to be doing some element of both of these, right? Yeah. So the problem isn't red work and blue work. The problem is is labeling groups of people red workers and blue workers. Because both red workers and blue workers look like human beings, we had to devise cultural labels and costumes and outfits. So, oh, you're in a lab coat. You must be a blue worker. You're a thinker. You're a decider. Oh, you're an overalls you're a red worker, you're a doer. You do what the other people decide that you should do. That's the problem. And so all these divisions, salary worker, hourly worker, white collar, blue collar, leader, follower, management worker, this all stems from this division of society into the thinkers and the doers. And that's what we got to get rid of. You did a ton of research for this book. And I know that one of the biggest challenges you had was figuring out how do you really frame language effectively? And what are the lessons we can learn from this? And there's five pages specifically in the book that just leapt out at me when I was reading. I was like, oh my gosh, that's huge. And (laughs) you've really nailed down seven sins of questioning. They come up in the Alfaro transcript consistently, and they also come up for many of us in organizations. And so I'm wondering if we can learn a little bit about your research today and just how we can ask better questions by avoiding some of these sins, but also you know what we can do better. And one of yeah. the first sins you <laughs> identify is the sin of stacking questions. Tell me about yeah. what is stacking questions and why should we be avoiding it? Okay. Well, so five pages out of 300, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So here's the, 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 these all things always start as self-help. So I was, I was like, why are they not telling me what they think? And so I practiced the different ways of asking questions. Not all questions are good questions. Here's the problem. So the, the overall theme is most times that we ask questions, we have quickly formulated a vision of what the other person is going through and maybe even have a solution. And so your questions are guided toward, toward that. So a stacking question is, so... Should we launch the product on time? I mean, I mean, it's really important that we launch it on time. And do you know how important it is? And I mean, the customer is really expecting it to be on time. So, you know, what's really in the way of launching it on time? You know, just ask the question and then shut up. The lesson for me that comes out of this is ask 
one question and be done. Yeah. Silent. You got to actually think about it before you open your mouth. Otherwise, you're basically what people are doing is they're taking you down a logic train because they're already picturing what the problem is. And so rather than waste time hearing what you actually think, well, let me just lead you right down to where I think the problem is. And then uh, we'll yeah. So it's almost like we're diluting ourselves by asking four or five questions because what we're technically asking a question, we're actually leading the other person to kind of go the way we want to go just by asking four or five questions in a row because we're taking them down that path versus just asking a question and being quiet. Exactly. And again, I think this stems from you either overtly think you know the answer in the situation or in subtle ways, you're applying whatever they're saying to something that happened in your life. And that's what you're picturing, even though it may be a totally different situation. So the number one thing is to, uh, I call it a tell me time box. Temporarily, just make your brain blank. Assume you don't know anything about what they're telling you and that they're right. They say we should launch on time. It's it's right. Or that we should delay launch. Hey, the 787 is not going to fly. I think we should delay the rollout ceremony. What? Have you thought about the customer? So that's what you want to do. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking back to the lessons you had for us from the Santa Fe of really pushing the decision level down as, as far down the chain of command as you can to the people who are doing the work, who have the expertise and the training to do that specific work and allowing them to have as much ownership as possible and as appropriate in that situation. And we're mirroring that well if we're asking the single question versus trying to ask a series of questions. Right. The second area, and we, we talked on this a bit, is a sin is leading questions. And you write, a leading question comes from a place of thinking the person is wrong or that you have the answer. I hear this a lot from people who think they have the right answer, but don't want to just say so. So they use the Socratic method of a quote unquote teaching moment. It's annoying and arrogant. How does yeah. that how does that sound when when it happens? Well, let's flip it. You're the subordinate. You've got a decision to make. You're going to launch a software update, big update next week or not. Yeah. And you're in the code. You know that there's a lot of complexity. Full testing hasn't been done. And your sense is that the risk gain equation is tipping against you in this case. And so you go to your boss and you say, hey, I'm really nervous about launching the software and I recommend we delay the launch. Now your boss doesn't want to hear this obviously. And they're going to try and teach you the, the right answer by saying, well, have you thought about the customer? I kind of joked on this earlier. Have you thought about, have you thought about safety? I mean, none of these questions are things you're not likely to have thought about. And so it's annoying. And the reason the questions come out this way is because they think they know the right answer and they're leading you down a path. You, have you thought about this? Have you thought, like these are all things that they think you should be thinking about. What they should be is curious about the things that you actually did think about. So they should say instead, oh, in, a, in the most neutral tone that they can muster. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about your thinking behind that. What factors did you weigh? And that kind of thing first before they do this. Well, let me teach you, young Padawan, and kind of give you a head pat and send you on your way. You make the distinction, rather than this being a teaching moment, try to turn it into a learning moment. Yeah. The learning is for you to understand what do they see that you don't see? What do they know that you don't know? And how are they processing it in a way that they came up with a different answer than you? Figure that out. 
And so this comes back to what you said a moment ago is you're leading with curiosity first, right? You may still have the other conversation, but first you're leading with curiosity to find out like, oh, interesting. This person's coming to me with this thing I didn't expect before I jump in and try to redirect. Let me see if I can understand where this is coming from. Right. Exactly. Another lesson you have for us is, and this has come up on the show a few times, and when I've mentioned this and other guests have mentioned this, we've sometimes gotten some pushback from people, David, on why questions, of using the word why when asking a question. And what's the concern with using the word why? Well, it's context-specific, but it sounds like this. I recommend delaying the product launch. Why would you want to do that? So you just sent the signal that you think it's a bad idea. And then they become on the defensive. They, now they have to justify the decision. I think we should divert and take the safe route, the protected route on the backside of the Bahamas to San Juan. Well, why would you want to do that? Mm. <laughs> now, so it's now you're fighting an uphill battle versus, well, tell me more. So why, why send a signal typically that you think it's wrong? And what we rather say is like, for example, what's in the way? If you said, well, I, I wasn't able to do X, Y, Z. Hey, we just had an event and all the prep wasn't done. Well, why weren't you prepared? That tends to put people on defensive and they'll go shut down. And if you ask, well, what was in the way? What were the barriers to preparation? You end up getting more participation in that conversation and you'll learn things that you wouldn't have learned if you used, I, I think, the why. Now, I think people react because I know... Simon Sinek's got a very famous TED talk about starting with why. Yeah. That's sort of a strategic why or purpose. What are we trying to achieve here? Which which I'm okay with. The the problem is sort of at the tactical level. You already know what you think. So don't waste time and energy on what you think. Understand what they think. You want to learn, you want to be smarter, you want to be curious. Even if the question you're trying to solve is. How can this smart, well-meaning, highly trained person on my team that I'm responsible for come up with such a wrong answer? Solve that problem. If you're so convinced that it's wrong, that's still your problem. I love the distinction you make there between it's the strategic why versus the tactical asking a question why in order to learn in the moment. And I suspect Simon Sinek would make the same distinction. By the way, he's a huge fan of your work and mentions you all the time. And so I know that you you both are kind of aligned on that as well, too. So that's huge. Another sin you mention is the sin of asking dirty questions. What's a dirty question? So this comes from a strain of psychological questioning. So imagine you're sitting on the couch and you're talking about your issues, where even the psychiatrist would ask, dirty questions, which was they would project their own biases into the question. You say, I'm having trouble with someone on my team doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you ask, well, do you have the courage to stand up to them? And it's dirty because A, it implies that courage is the scarce resource that you need to muster. Number two, that you need to, quote, stand up versus lie down or crawl or wave a hand or anything else. So you're sending the metaphor. And finally, that there's action that you should or ought to take and that you own the problem. So in so many ways, even though we're not deliberately trying to do it, we're injecting our own biases into the question. It's amazing. When I think about that question you asked just a moment ago, do you have the courage to stand up to them? And 
there are four or five strong statements you're saying as the person who's asking that question that's disguised as a question, but you're making four or five really strong statements to the other person about the direction that they should go and assumptions that they should have. And this is why this book is so important, because we think as leaders, if I just ask questions, I am doing a good job. I am being more coach-like. But it's not enough just to be asking questions. It's the hygiene of how you ask the questions that makes the big difference. Right. One of the other ones you mentioned is, and we mentioned this a bit ago, binary questions and avoiding asking a binary question. A binary question is, you know, one or the other. What's the danger here? Well, uh, let me start with the allure. The allure is it's fast. Should we turn left? Should we launch the product? The danger is what you're going to get is the expected right answer on the morning construction site meeting. Is it safe? Uh Uh-huh. Go. It's a very high bar for someone to raise their hand and say, it's not safe. But it's a very low bar for someone to say, on a scale of one to five, today is a five out of five. And then tomorrow, it's only a four out of five. The weather's deteriorating. We have a new team member. And I, I wouldn't put a thumbs down if you forced me to do that. But I am willing to go four fingers rather than five. So again, it's asking a question to result in a nuanced answer. And the binary thinking, the reason we do it, there's a couple of reasons. One, it's reducing variability because the answer can only be yes or no. So it's cognitively simplifying and laziness. And that's how your brain is wired. And then number two is the outcome might be binary. Should we continue straight or divert? Should we launch the product or not? But the input is not binary. The input is a whole range of pluses and minuses in people's gut reactions and feelings to what it is. And so if you ask the binary question first, you don't learn all that other stuff. Yeah. And to reinforce what you said a minute ago, just changing a word or two can make a big difference here, right? So rather than saying what you asked a moment ago, is it safe? Yes or no? You change it to how safe is it? That's all you need to do. And that's a really different, potentially a much different answer. And you get the spectrum of possibilities versus a just yes or no when the yes might be, like you said, 51%. Yeah, exactly. You use the term in the book, team language coefficient. And I think it relates to this specifically. Tell us about team language coefficient. What does that mean? Why is it important? When you look at the 25 hours of transcript on the El Faro, and you count the words that everybody says, there's some really interesting things that come out. So I'm not making any judgment about the quality of the word or the kind of word, whether it's a statement or a question, just word count. That's all you need. And I said, well, let me look at every time there's three people on the bridge, the captain, the watch officer, and the seaman who's steering the ship. So that's the hierarchy, captain, watch officer, seaman. And if I counted the words and I just said, there are three people, Here's, here's the number of words each person said. This person said 55% of the words. This person said 40% of the words. And this person said 5% of the words. Guess who's who? In every single case, you'd have been 100% correct if you simply aligned the word count to the hierarchy. In every case, the captain said the most number of words in all three different teams. The officer said the next most. And then way below that person, the crewman. The crewman said 2% on one team, 3% on another, and 5%. And no, no crewman said more than 
one twentieth of the entire word said during the time the captain was on the bridge. And the other part of that that's really fascinating is when the captain leaves the bridge and you look at the transcript, there's a lot to be said. It's right. just not said in the presence of the captain. Correct. And then the captain leaves and now there's just the two people. And then, and then now they're going back and forth and almost like 50-50. Uh, so you can measure that variation. And we piggyback on a calculation called the Gini coefficient, which is how you measure income inequality in countries. And so it's a number between zero and one, zero being totally even, four people, each person said 25% of the words versus 1.0, which is one person said 100% of the words. Mm. And so then now we can attach a number score to any team interaction. It could be a meeting you have in your office. And the hypothesis is that the more even the number, the lower the Gini coefficient, the more even the sharing of the voices, the more resilient the team is. And typically have uneven skew happens two ways. Either one person, typically the leader, blathers on too much, or one person or more, the outlying thinkers typically, or just introverts, or just quiet people, or just unsure people, or whatever they're in, don't say anything. And so your job as a leader is to generate a more even share of voice. And so you look at the people who are being quiet, and you invite them into the, con- hey, I, John, you've been quiet. How are you seeing this? What do you see in our conversation so far that gives you pause? And make it easy for those people. If it's good psychological safety, they'll chime in. If they're still queasy, then make a note and just kind of catch them afterwards. You know, I was, I felt like we were deprived of what you think and what you see. Can you share it with me? So it's about leveling that share of voice. And there is science. There's a professor at MIT, Professor Malone, who's done some studies on this where he's actually shown teams with a more even share of voice are more resilient and effective. And this comes right back to binary questions, right? If you're asking, is it safe? And the answer right. is yes. You know, that's a <laughs> just, I mean, just taking those four words, is it safe? Yes. It's three times the right. word count for the person asking the question. Whereas if you ask, how safe is it? you open up almost certainly a more nuanced, richer, lots more data points answer because there's certainly going to be more than a one-word response to that question. Exactly. Ask the question in a way that think, you think will elicit the most number of words from the other person. That's another just good way to think about it. Now, if I say, is it safe, then that's not going to get it done. Now, if you got 10 seconds to make a decision... Should we evacuate the building or not? I still can do really fast. Five, evacuate. Zero, don't evacuate. Everybody, one, two, three, hands up. Then you look at it and then you say, okay, we're evacuating. Yeah, fascinating. I'm thinking back to just the team language coefficient too and what you did on the Santa Fe and getting folks to make decisions for themselves and saying, I intend to versus request permission. and. I don't know if you were thinking about team language coefficient at the time, but inevitably, there's a lot more dialogue that's happening with folks at the lower levels in the organization who are actually doing the work. And it'd be interesting if we could take a transcript of like the Santa Fe and compare it to what happened on the Alfaro. I mean, two very different outcomes in similar environments. Exactly. So like this captain, in this 25-hour period, he makes about 1,600 statements and he asks 250 questions. But when you look at the questions, the majority of the questions are not really questions. He'll say, 
what's the name of this waypoint? Alpha? What's the course here? 245? So how does this look to you? Good? In other words, he's answering his own questions half the time. Now, if you say, what's the waypoint? Alpha, and you know it's labeled Bravo. That's pretty easy. But so we're going to keep going straight, right? And you think we should divert. You just made it a lot harder for the person to say, no, I don't agree with you. Yeah. And you want to ask the question in a way that makes it easy for the person to provide you with disproving, disconfirming information. What am I missing? How could this be wrong? What was unclear? And take that path. You got to structure it so that the easy road for them is the road that you actually don't want to hear. Yeah. The situation you've captured with the Alfaro and looking at this and aviation is a great example. And what you did on the Santa Fe is a great example because the stakes are so high and so apparent from a life safety standpoint, from a military standpoint. And yet there's so much for us to learn in organizations because sometimes we don't see always the immediate effects every day in an organization, but the outcomes and the effects on language are almost the same as how as human beings, we either encourage conversation or we shut it down by the questions we ask. So this is great, David. So to reinforce what we said earlier, this is five pages, what we've talked about today. There's 300 pages in the book. There's a lot here. You've done a ton of research, so much that helpful for all of us in asking better questions. I know you've narrated the audiobook for those who love to read audiobooks as well. So I'd invite folks to dive in on that. Before I let you go, I am curious, you know, I like to ask this often on (laughs) what you've changed your mind on as you've written this book, as you've been going around teaching organizations how to use better language as leaders, what have you changed your mind on in the recent past? I think it goes back to something that we talked about, which was I would read about these crashes and these disasters. And as I was working on the book, that fire on down the dive ship happened out, a horrendous fire happened out in California and corporate malfeasance like the Volkswagen diesel scandal or now the 737 Max. And my immediate reaction would be, I wanted them to be evil. I wanted them to be flawed, evil humans because that way it could separate them from me. Uh... That's just them. They're flawed and they're evil. I'm of course not. And I don't think that's the case. In the large, vast majority of these, these are good people trying to do what I think they think is the right thing to do. Look at the Challenger and the Columbia disasters. Those were not evil people. They're trying to do what the system is designed to have them do. The problem is we're trapped in the wrong leadership playbook, and we got to use a new playbook. We're good people trying to do the right thing using a wrong set of plays and having suboptimal outcomes. And this book is an invitation for a new playbook. The title again, Leadership is Language, The Hidden Power of What You Say and What You Don't. David Marquet, always a pleasure, sir. Ah, Cheers. Thanks. Thanks, all all, all your listeners, what you do to make the world a better place. As you've heard in this conversation, not only important for leaders to be asking questions, but to ask questions the right way. And many related episodes that'll also support this conversation and what we've learned today from David and help you to do that even more effectively. 
One of them is about another disaster. Episode 229, Leadership Lessons from Challenger. My guest on that episode was Alan McDonald. Alan was one of the key people at Cape Canaveral the night before Challenger's launch in 1986 who was advocating against the launch. He was the one person, in fact, who refused to actually sign the paperwork. As you know, his efforts did not succeed. Yet, there is so much we can learn from that conversation as well. And the lessons for all of us from a leadership standpoint on decision-making, conversation, ethics, episode 229 is a must-listen for you if you've not heard it before. I'd also recommend, of course, the work of Michael Bungay-Stanier, who has taught all of us to become better at asking great questions. Episode 237 is a great starting point if you have not yet read the Coaching Habit book or heard Michael before. That is a wonderful introduction to how to ask better questions as a leader in everyday conversation that'll help you to get better results and to do many of the self-learning activities we talked about in this conversation. Also recommended is episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership with Edgar Schein and Peter Schein. So much of what David taught us about today is about making the shift from being self-affirming in how we are asking questions to being self-educating, that curiosity continuing to come out. And of course, humility comes along with that too. Edgar and Peter are just brilliant in their work on humble leadership. They have a book by the same name and episode 363 features some of their key thinking. And then finally, no conversation about asking good questions and creating an environment of culture where the truth emerges and not only emerges, but that people are willing and comfortable to be able to share the truth. No conversation would be complete without mentioning the work of Amy Edmondson and how to build psychological safety. That was the focus of episode 404. Amy's work so important in thinking about this as well and how we as leaders, if not for the entire organization, can at least create psychological safety within our own teams. All of those episodes you can find at coachingforleaders.com. If you set up your free membership, it's going to give you access to the entire episode library and all of the topics that you can search. One of those topics is coaching skills, which is where this episode is tagged under amongst several others, but you can access all those past episodes just by going over to coachingforleaders.com, setting up your free membership. It'll also open up all of the benefits of free membership for you. And one of those benefits is access to several of the audio courses that are posted there. One of them is 10 ways to empower the people you lead. And that features a number of lessons over the years from the show that will help you to do a better job of leading in many capacities in addition to asking great questions. So you can access that for free inside the portal once you've set up your free membership. In addition, it's also going to give you access to my weekly leadership guide, which posts every Wednesday. You'll receive that in your inbox with some resources, uh, the notes for each episode, my book notes, uh, also many of the things I found online during the week that will be helpful to support your continued leadership development uh, from others and in the popular media. So all of that you can find just by going to coachingforleaders.com, setting up that free membership, and you'll be off and running with our entire community. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Colleen Bordeaux to the show. She's going to be teaching us how to create great relationships. Don't miss it. Have a wonderful week and see you for our next conversation on Monday. Take care, everyone.